Now, given how new and advanced AI is as a concept, you can imagine how difficult it would be to onboard your stakeholders. You know, first off, you got to identify the right stakeholders. Second, you got to have, you know, uh, layman terms level uh, knowledge um, and definition of, of the AI itself to onboard your stakeholders and set realistic expectations. So a whole bunch as a strategy could use to, you know, engage your stakeholders and make sure they're on the same board. Uh, at the topic of today's talk, my guest, Paul Orchanian, and uh, Paul is consultant, uh, a coach, a keynote speaker, an author, all wrapped into one. Uh, he shares his transition out of corporate world and into starting his own business, being public, revealing the extreme challenges of unblocking company structure and policies from doing the right thing. So without any further ado, let's let's dive right in my chat today with Paul on stakeholder management for AI products. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Shirazian, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Paul, welcome to PM Hub. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, really happy to be here. For sure, yeah. And today's topic is actually, it's quite tricky from what I've been talking and hearing uh, from the folks in the, in the AI space about like stakeholder management uh, that we're going to talk about. And But I guess before we get started, you know, uh, product itself is kind of, there's no one path to product. Uh, there's no one kind of straight path from school typically. And AI itself, same thing. So I'm curious, like how how did you end up being how did you end up being in product and AI? I'd love to hear that journey. Uh, the product journey started when I was in San Francisco. Um, I I went there as an engineer um, back in the days where having both the engineering and creative hat um, was something that people coveted. Um, this is the days where Adobe Flash and you know, um, you know, creating crazy websites that had a lot of interactivity were uh, were the cool thing, and um, so that got me into rich internet applications, uh, which they used to call back in the day, and uh, and into HTML5 uh, complex websites, you know, which would be the precursors of SaaS. Um, and eventually, from engineering, I <clears throat> I jumped into um, product management mainly because I was doing a lot of user user experience, business requirements gathering, and taking part in a lot of the strategic discussions. So, I had um, um, a, a friend of mine from Adobe uh, who was a product manager there, and uh, we started exchanging, uh, talking about it, and he he asked me why not just give it a try and. Uh, and Basically started at a startup in San Francisco. Uh, first experience as a product manager was the worst experience ever. Um, I think I did everything huh. to get myself fired, which I did. I did get fired. Um, and I think uh, from there I learned uh, that product management is very, you know, it's it, you can read any as many books as you want, but there is a, a softer side of product management of how to m handle humans, how to manage humans, and um, ultimately the software business is a human business. You deal with a lot of stakeholders, so. I dedicated to the other part of my life or product management life to really mastering that aspect of becoming a good product manager. Um, in terms of AI, um, I, you know, I started uh, Bain Public um, 
uh, along the same times where we started with Watch Mojo, uh, a client of ours, which we still have today. And um, you know, on their roadmap, we had discussed about creating our first chatbot uh, as a recommendation system of what videos to watch um, based on the answers and the, you know, the questions and answers. And this was, you know, maybe four years ago where chatbots were, you know, the it thing, uh, everybody wanted to build one. Yeah. And, um, and I realized that, um, you know, I, you know, just to program a chatbot, <clears throat> we ended up doing what, uh, in the AI world you call feature engineering, which is just faking the answers, you know, making the, the chatbot, um, believable, but on the other hand, you are constructing the answers and uh, it's a manual constructions of the results. Uh, so um, I, I wouldn't say it was AI, but it looked like AI. Uh, mm. But from an AI purist uh, perspective, that, that's not AI. That's that's a very well-defined procedures that would, they were very methodically designed and you know pre-written and understood by everyone on the team. And I, I that was a, that was a first foray into it. Um, and then I got introduced to Eurodite AI here, a company in Montreal that was an edutech company that <clears throat> used reinforcement learning uh, to really help children, uh, especially high school children, get support through their mathematical homework. And uh, that's where I really got into it. I was I was there as an advisor, uh, had a great data science team. And uh, you know I, I really felt so inspired that I invited them to come to watch Mojo help me out on some of this AI vision that that I had, and mm. uh, and that's where we created Supernatural, which was our first pass of trying to predict uh, what videos people would like to watch and the amount of YouTube views that video would get based on its title. Mm. Um, and uh, that's where um, they stepped in. They they showed they they showed me how to basically utilize deep learning, and uh, and I really really enjoyed uh, the process of you know learning you know, how data, how much data, and, and as well as like the non-linearity of it, because it was, you know, you get to the end and you realize that your your machine learning module is, you know, 50% accurate and that's uh, that's not good enough. And, you know, you have to try and try just to get it up to 56%. And, you know, that's where you suddenly hit that wall of, oh, AI is not that easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but from there, I followed with a number of projects with uh, some some clients of ours. Uh, Waystack was uh, a company in the waste management industry. First, they started detecting birds in landfills, and then they pivoted away to uh, detecting mattresses and waste triage stations to allow for a more sustainable future. I definitely mm-hmm. love what they're building, and we work with data performers. Uh, they're the official AI supplier for the government of Canada, so they actually helped me a lot in um, really understanding some of the granularity of AI engines and you know all, all the tools that are out there. Uh, Blaze Transit, with whom we work with today, are uh, in the transportation space and they're on, into creating on-demand bus scheduling uh, for uh, for towns across Canada and, and the U.S. As well as Enkidu.ai, which is uh, basically about using AI for supply chain management. So, you know, it's it's funny. These are all different industries, but they all use AI. And once you understand the fundamentals of it and some of the limitations and 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 challenges, it just becomes such a fascinating space to to be a product manager on. Very cool. Very cool. And I, it's it's very interesting. You mentioned your first job as a PM. You got fired because of that soft skill side. So I'm, I'm really, I think you have a lot of good learnings to to share with us, but like 
you you mentioned like the transition between uh, you know doing PM for regular software products into AI. Like, how did that happen for you? Um, so it was through those first projects where <clears throat> once I realized that feature engineering is is just a, a fake way of doing AI. And the best way I can explain it is, you know, AI is, uh, you know, if I wanted to tell a machine uh, how to detect an orange, um, I, you know, in, in, in the way AI is done today and, and understood today is, you know, I'm going to show it a thousand pictures of oranges and eventually it's going to, the machine's going to figure out that an orange is circle, it's orange, uh, it has different textures, right? So if I were to show it an image of an apple or an image of a pear, it'll figure out that it's not an orange because it learned through the thousand iterations of orange learning, right? Mm. Um, but, you know, a few years back, I mean, we're talking about four or five years ago, people were still thinking of AI as uh, if I want to tell a machine what an orange is, uh, the I'll let it know first that it's circular. And the second thing I need to let it know, it's sometimes it's orange, but it can go from orange to, to you know, uh, yellow, um, but not too yellow because that's a lemon, right? Mm. Uh, so it's all these if and else conditions that maybe collectively would allow a machine to identify an orange, but you really have to write every single exception and condition to really help the machine identify an orange. Well, that's not really AI. That's you telling the computer what an orange should be like. Um, whereas the, the true AI is, is where you're basically having a machine learn what an orange looks like based on photos that you're gonna show. And uh, the only way it becomes a very accurate orange detector is if it, you give it enough photos of oranges for it to basically uh, identify all types of oranges, no matter if it's green or yellow or anything, uh, but smart enough to uh, figure out what the difference between a peach and a lemon is. Uh, and how it does that, no one knows. And the beauty about AI is it's a black box and the less we know, the, the happier we are somehow. Um, and that does create some some challenges to to working with stakeholders. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's dive into that. So I guess what's interesting and just what we mentioned about, I guess, uh, what goes in, what kind of the output of an AI model and how explainable it is to a stakeholder. So before we talk into it, actually, let's talk about, I mean, for, for a typical software product, we're talking identifying stakeholders, like it's, it's essentially whoever's got some hands in the decision could be a bottleneck. So I'm curious, like how, how would you see it through for AI products? How would that differ? How would you yeah. figure out what's the right stakeholder? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's funny because um, a lot of founders or uh, CEOs of organizations uh, will suffer from shiny object syndrome, right, uh, which I call SOS, where, you know, they go and they see AI and they read about AI and they come back to their engineering team and they ask for it, right? I mean, the first thing about AI is that, you know, do you have data? I mean, if I'm going to teach a computer one and oranges, uh, I need images of oranges. And do you have images of oranges? So I think stakeholders need to understand, uh, first of all, that data is um, data is the most important element uh, and the most crucial element uh, of, uh, of doing artificial intelligence. And 
that's first. And second of all is what do you do with the data? I mean, I can identify an orange, but what? how is that going to help the customer, right? As a product manager, you want to be customer centric. So um, whether or not you have the data, um, the next question is how can I create value? And that value, uh, does it correspond to something that the customer wants? Does it correspond to something that the customer sees value from and is willing to pay, which will allow the company to hit its next financial milestone? So you have to put that in that perspective. Uh, but if you do, if the stakeholder is, you know, um, is, is ready to invest in it and the, the data is there and there is a good use case for it, uh, then it's worth trying, right? But you got to set the right expectation with them. Um, because uh, one of the most important is about a product manager's getting into AI is that you need to build safety nets around consequences of getting it wrong. Um, because there are costs um, uh, of, of getting uh, an AI implemented effectively. Um, and if the stakeholders do not, are not ready to have realistic expectations <clears throat> of the business value AI can provide in the short, intermediate, and long term, uh, then there's no point in doing it. Um, so you basically just need to make sense uh, through what I call um, um, you know, a dumb AI engine, right? Like try it, you know, there's nothing wrong in simulating AI, putting it in front of customers and seeing how uh, customers react to it. Um, and that could be a first iteration just to realistically um, let the stakeholders know that, you know, this is what's going to happen if we get to the, the finish line. So it's kind of a fake it till you make it scenario um, and in order to validate that this automation eventually through machine learning has value to the customer. Um, and then you have to start looking at the data itself. I mean, is this trainable data? Is it clean enough? Um, and uh, and then as well as trying to identify with the stakeholder, uh, what, what are you trying to achieve out of this? <clears throat> what is the acceptable accuracy? level um, one of the one of the things that I like um, is when people tell me well how accurate should should your machine learning or AI module be and and the, the answer um, that I usually give them is like is, is how, how accurate is a human being I mean we're replacing a human being if it's detecting mattresses or trying to predict the a bus um, route or if it's about uh, figuring out um, if the what is going to be your next uh, purchase order uh, through uh, through looking at uh, all of your uh, previous uh, invoices, it, it still comes down to how accurate is a human doing that prediction versus how accurate can uh, the artificial intelligence um, machine learning module be. And, um, you know, the, some stakeholders might want it to be perfect, right? Like for in their head, um, a machine is never wrong. Well, the reality is that no machines, it's hard to get a machine to be very accurate. But if a human's 60% accurate, um, then we just want that uh, accuracy level to be human plus one, right? That's 61%. If we hit 61%, we're better than a human. And uh, that actually is the, the value we're trying to get to. Um, so it's hard to let stakeholders uh, acknowledge and be aware that going from 60 to 61 and from 61 to 66 and eventually to 70, that, that's that's a huge investment in time and money and resources. And you know what? So you're never going to get to 90 or 100. So you know, don't come running back to me and ask me if the AI is uh, is making mistakes. It'll make mistakes. I mean, it's basically it's not human. Humans make mistakes. Uh, why wouldn't a machine make a mistake? Um, so it's just setting those expectations. So how 
would you know, like, for example, I want to know that, for example, I'm trying to build a model with a certain accuracy, but how would I know how far I can go? Because it sounds like to me it's an explora- exploration of what's possible. But how would yeah. I know if my stakeholder asked me, you know what, if you're at 50%, can you get to 70%? Like, can you get to 80%? How would I get to know that? Because I'm, I'm, my assumption is that I would get to know as I invest more into, you know, exploring uh, different, different kind of like variations and kind of like adding and removing whatever that is to improve the model. But how would you how would you set that up with the stakeholder? Because because seems like a pretty uncertain to them, right? Yeah, I mean that's the human part, right? Like as a product manager, you want to set the right expectations. Uh, we can talk about data all day long, but you know I can I can tell you that it comes down to the analysis of the data. It comes down to the data structure and the distribution, and uh, you know uh, you know the, the selection of the correct data and the pre-processing of that data. But it's not no stakeholder will understand that language, right? Uh, so I, I usually try to make it more in, you know, in business terms, uh, right? So for, let's say, let's take an example of, you know, uh, AI trying to repeat something that's very manual and repetitive that a human being is doing, and we're going to replace it with uh, an AI. Um, and, and an example would be um, quality assurance, where human beings need to stay long hours looking at something in order to identify defects, right? Um, and, uh, you know, human beings, um, if you were to say, okay, instead of giving you, instead of figuring out the accuracy question here, let's go see what are the problems of a human being doing this task, right? Um, if we were to spend three weeks identifying how accurate that human being is, uh, identifying, um, you know, issues, quality assurance issues, uh, we'll realize that maybe their accuracy is at 60%. Uh, but, you know, you also have to look at it from a perspective of, Fatigue can set in when people start working, um, you know, uh, more than five, six, seven hours. Um, so it'll drop the, in the quality uh, of, of their accuracy, right? So, um, and also humans need training and they can end up leaving the company and they can end up getting promoted to another role or hit by a bus. So you got to worry about a lot of those things um, and also consider tasks where, uh, labor is not affordable. Um, there's low retention rates, uh, which means skill sets get lost. Uh, so the, the, basically, the way you would see it is, look, the human being is not a perfect thing. And um, if we were to basically just create some consistency, even if it's a 60% accuracy and the human being is at you know, 65, doesn't matter. If we hit 60%, you would eliminate all these issues that a human beings face, right? Um, and, and you would be able to do that 60% in a repeatable manner of 24, seven, 365. So it's not about accuracy. It's really about uh, all the benefits you get of it. Uh, and then let's talk about accuracy, which is, you know, uh, how, I, I need more data. In order to get more data, I need to basically have this machine running. The more longer this machine runs, the more data I acquire. The more data I acquire, the more I can basically retrain the machine to make it better. It's just like a human being, right? At some point, uh, that skill set gets learned over time. You become experienced. Unfortunately, human beings leave. 
AI doesn't leave, the ML will stay. So um, I think it's those types of conversations you wanna have with stakeholders uh, rather than getting into the, the data science part of pre-processing, transforming data, and uh, and you know always complaining that the data that's coming in is, is of poor quality, so it's never gonna help, it's never gonna really allow it to get any better. So we need to evaluate the algorithms and, and test them and, tune him and you know um, it, it's like all of this this jargon that people use in, in data science to me is, is is quite interesting but it doesn't change the, the perception of, of a stakeholder a stakeholder is there to know if you know what are the benefits of AI versus a, a human being and it's not about accuracy if the if human being is 67 and the and the we can get consistency at 60 percent through the AI, well, that should be a good start, and you know we shouldn't be discouraged by it. We actually should be encouraged because there's great benefits that are coming to the organization because of it. Right? Yeah, I, I definitely follow that. That you kind of like how you come up with the baseline of you know what the accuracy level, the baseline, based on you compare it with the human levels, and kind of like you take into account all those factors that you mentioned, like. You know turnover you mentioned about fatigue all that kind of stuff but how would you how would you kind of like set the expectation in terms of like even you can actually reach that match that human level of uh accuracy in that sense even when you're just about to explore so how would you handle such conversations if i'm a stakeholder i'm asking you know what can you match like to what level can you match this or can you exceed this level of uh, kind of accuracy yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I I I, I would. Um, you you have to set the right expectations, right? You sh you can't overpromise because you're at the mercy of a, of data scientists and they're at the mercy of algorithms and data, right? Um, so it's 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 hard for you to say, hey, in three weeks we'll hit 67, right? Uh, this is the biggest challenge of product management when it when it comes down to training uh, machine learning models uh, and AI is that you need to basically work in this uh, iteratively where you can't promise anything other than trust me, it'll get better, right? Uh, so the best thing you could do is suggest to work on things iteratively with maybe monthly or quarterly release schedule sort of create the conditions for success. Um, ask if you have the data necessary to train the machine learning module. And if you basically feel there isn't enough, you can say next month, we'll, we'll, you know, we're gonna be looking at how we could basically get better data or we can get cleaner data. And the month after we're gonna look at uh, a different algorithm approach. But, you know, I think the main difference between um, engineering and um, artificial intelligence is that in engineering, it's very prescriptive. I know exactly what I need to do. I can say that the engineers will be able to deliver exactly this with 100% accuracy once, uh, you know, within three weeks or three months, right? Uh, with AI, there's all this uncertainty that where there is no answer. No one really knows the answer. Even the, the most uh, prolific uh, scientists who basically have worked with various algorithms can't tell you how the algorithm will react to the data. Um, so ultimately, it's just, you know, it's, it's about creating that trust by um, protecting yourself and your AI algorithm uh, um, around the consequences of when you have false uh, positives, right? So where when the AI is wrong, how does the interface react? 
how do I need to make sure that there are no negative consequences to things? Uh, so the best example I can tell you is when you search for Google uh, for um, gorilla, um, you know, it shows you a bunch of pictures of gorillas and there you go, there's a picture of Donald Trump. How did that happen, right? Um, somehow something happened and, and the AI was wrong. Um, so Google allows you to click on the picture and identify that this picture is not a gorilla. And, and that's, 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 that's where you basically create this cyclical loop where human beings can identify and participate in the training of the data uh, of the machine learning module by engaging with it. So that's part of product management where you have to not only you know, under pro you can't overpromise accuracy, but it's not always about accuracy. You could be very inaccurate, but have a great user interface that allows um, the the customers or the public to participate uh, in making the AI better, or to buffer some of the consequences of the poor decisions that the AI is making. Um, so I think it's 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 this process of constantly being able to uh, mix and match. Um, you know, the data science aspect of things, expectation setting, uh, managing poor and bad consequences through good product features that you can uh, create in order to create a whole. As a product manager, you're responsible of the whole experience, not just of the AI part. So it's, uh, it's really, um, you know, uh, making sure that uh, stakeholders are aware that at every given month or every given quarter, there's gonna be improvements in any of these areas uh, that will allow for uh, for the whole experience to be uh, to be a positive one and get better. Yeah, and knowing that this is completely different from, uh, as you mentioned, like a predictive uh, piece of software that you know exactly what's going to deliver. You know what you can aim for in terms of accuracy. Like I'm curious, like to hear from your experience some examples, like kind of like setting these expectations and kind of like dealing with the stakeholders' reactions not being able to give them, hey, you know what, I can't give you more than kind of like this, I need this set of data and it's gonna, we're gonna start to work on it and it's gonna get better. I'm curious, like, I'd love to hear some of those, some of those, those discussions that you've had and some of the reactions you got and kind of like how you went about handling them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I like to focus on the why and in product managers, we're thought to focus on the why. You need to make the business case, right? In the case of AI, the business case is an easy one. You bring it back to the human, the human being who is currently doing this job, the consequences, the all of that stuff, right? But I think that we oftentimes uh, forget uh, of, um, you know, we, we mentioned that, you know, if a human being is looking at for qu the quality defects, he can get tired and he can make mistakes and all that stuff, right? We know all that, but we sometimes forget what are the impact of human beings making a mistake. Um, so if a human ma being makes a mistake and, uh, for example, uh, you know, um, there is a quality issue and that quality issue basically creates recalls for a number of cars, um, then the impact on the company is, uh, is huge, right? Like recalls are very expensive to organization. It all comes down to a human mistake. But somehow in our society, we tend to um, not acknowledge the failure of our own species. Um, and uh, so we don't quantify the resources of time, money, and energy that go into covering up for a human mistake. Um, so it's important for us to always bring back uh, 
the overall strategy of why we basically proposed an AI solution. And, uh, and in, in terms of, of the replacement cost of a human being, but also of the consequences of a human doing, being doing something wrong. Um, and so it's not always about accuracy. It's about, you know, uh, understanding that is there, are, are there things that the human being would, could have done, would have done um, to prevent something from becoming even worse. Whereas an AI, on the other hand, could be programmed to basically uh, catch mistakes and basically prevent it from getting even worse, right? Uh, those are things software can do. Humans can't do it because um, just for an example, let's say you have a supply, uh, uh, a treadmill where a bunch of eggs are being shown and a human being needs to identify the eggs that are rotten, right? Uh, I mean, a human being, if, if, a, if a rotten egg passes and he doesn't catch it, uh, he, he won't look back and try to bring it back in from the treadmill. And, you know, it's like his job is just to focus on just right what's in right in front of him, whereas a, a machine can be trained not only to identify the rotten eggs, but also like to, to take measures if it skipped a rotten egg or misidentified and et cetera. So there's a lot of benefits that you could build around it. I don't know if that answers your questions, but uh, I, I mean, that's the idea of, uh, of, of how to handle these situations. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, yeah. I get where you're coming from. I was, I was just like wondering if this whole, because uh, to me, like when I, when I talk to my stakeholders for regular software products, you know, even with that, like setting up expectations about timelines and what's realistic, it's often challenging. So, I was curious, like, you know, when it comes to AI and, you know, you're not being able to kind of promise kind of like any level of like potential result. It's all experimentation. I was curious, like, if you had some examples to share with us, like uh, if kind of like how conversations would go and kind of like any any interesting uh, nuggets yeah. from those <clears throat> chats. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing to do an AI project in a company. And that's another thing to establish an AI process in, in an organization. Um, the the biggest issues are in a, in an in an engineering organization or a product led engineering organization. Everybody knows what to do. Um, whereas if you were to you know go inside and being more into the AI space, you know first of all it's a science, right? It's a bunch of experiments. But if you want to start focusing on making it better, uh, you need to change the entire process of how the organization works through a lot of transformation and, and um, in order to handle all these moving parts, right? So what are the parts? Like you, you got to let the, 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 the stakeholders know that there are engineering costs, right, of implementing these new processes. There's going to be new infrastructures. There are going to be new tools. We're going to need GPU costs. That's on one side. Uh, there's also a lot of data costs, uh, both in collecting the data and cleaning the data, and um, and, uh, and and basically um, all, all the um, you know managing success failure, and then basically being able to cleanse that data in order to retrain it. So all of these things are are part of the data costs, and you need to have resources against those and those resources should be working on it relentlessly because uh, that's the core of it and there's the training cost of the machine learning module and it's not that you train it once and you forget you got to train it once in a laboratory setting then you have to retrain it post-launch then the, the data 
data needs to be frequently revised and the machine learning updated. Um, and, and you got to monitor the, the machine learning at runtime for technical glitches and, and uh, prediction accuracy issues. So these are all part of the training costs and that requires its own resource to oversee it. Uh, there's also the UX cost of, uh, of making sure how that users are positively responding to this AI. Um, you know, human beings sometimes react negatively, so you need to create the feedback loops, uh, anything that you could do through the UX to mitigate the wrong predictions, the catastrophes, um, through all kinds of business logic you could create through the UI or sometimes UI safety nets. And then there's all the maintenance costs of continually monitoring that AI performance, development of new training data sets and oversight of the mechanisms and maintenance processes of updating those models. So all of this, it, you know, it, it requires its a different team, a team that is not, you know, I can't just go back to an engineering team and expect that from them because, you know, they they usually work with languages like JavaScript and uh, and um, and all kinds of like uh, HTML5 and all kinds of things that are, you know, very databases and SQL. They're not used to working with uh, this, this uh, new, um, agglomeration of different types of tasks and duties. And a lot of people don't really understand that, you know, there is AI that you can do in a laboratory within the workspace and you can test the accuracy and et cetera. But it's, it's another thing to actually launch this machine learning module in the wild. Once it's in the wild, anything can happen. So it, there's, it's, it's another subset of trying to see how you can actually manage that overhead of, you know, something's in the wild now and anything can happen. So how are we going to mitigate it, right? And how are we going to keep pumping it and making it better? So, uh, you, you know, I think most stakeholders need to, um, you know, um, constantly, you know, uh, understand that it's, it's, you know, it's not because you have an engineering team that you can basically do AI. Uh, you could experiment with AI through that engineering team. Everyone's going to have a blast basically um, participating in this exploration, but eventually to make this into a, a you know, a robust um, portion of the business, then uh, it's imperative that they invest in, um, you know, engineering, data, training, UX, and maintenance all together, or, or you're not going to be able to deploy anything in the real world. Yeah. So it sounds like, like there's been a lot of situations of like just communi communicating the differences and educating uh, of kind of like the, the nature of it, AI uh, products and how we're going to go on it and kind of approach them. That's, that's, that seems like the biggest difference of what we're talking about here. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it's a it's a whole new world, and um, I mean, I feel that most products, you know, you, you can you can have a AI first product where AI is basically the foundation of of the entire startup or the, the entire company, right? But most businesses um, in the next five to ten years will basically have AI augmented on their existing product. Right or in, or efficiencies inside the secret sauce of what makes their company what it is. So they're going to invest in AI somewhere somehow. Um, but sometimes they won't invest in the team that builds the AI and maintains the AI. And I think it's important that 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 basically gets uh, settled before the AI project is selected and and you basically get the green light on that. It's uh, it's really about. Uh, you know, it's the same thing as saying, look, uh, we, you know, like back in the day, we didn't need UX teams. The engineers would figure it out. And now we have UX yeah. teams, right? Same thing. Yeah.
Yeah, exactly. Very cool. So last question I had, like kind of a fun question in a way, could be fun. I don't know how you look at it. But what are your thoughts of, you know, artificial super intelligence or AGI and, you know, robots, robots ability taking over the world? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's scary. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I, I sometimes hear uh, CEOs in Silicon Valley, uh, especially uh, those of Google, basically mention how China has taken a, uh, a huge leap forward in, um, in, in, in this race for AI supremacy, I guess, and uh, how they leverage data uh, in order to create all kinds of things. Like I even, I'm scared when I see my kids in front of TikTok these days because, you know, all, all this information recorded and uh, basically being sent down somewhere, and something's happening with it, and I don't know what's happening with it, but obviously there is a, there's a lot of. Uh, lack of uh, transparency happening from uh, various countries that are collecting this data. And, you know, you'd be surprised that, um, and you should even be questioning, or we should be questioning ourselves, that all of these free apps and tools that leverage cameras um, to, to allow us to record ourselves. How are they being funded? How are they basically monetizing? Is this mm -hmm. a, do they have a viable revenue stream other than uh, that data to be used for other purposes? So, you know, we're, we are living in this age of uh, autonomous uh, um, killer robots, as we can call them, where you know, there's been allegations of uh, various countries basically, um, you know, um, putting out some, some, um, some drones that have the ability to detect humans and uh, and um, you know these these autonomous weapon systems are programmed to attack targets without uh, uh, requiring data connectivity so you know everything uh, the AI the machine learning is embedded directly into the, the into the drone itself um, with with no operator right so it's a it's an interesting um, phenomenon where you know even though there's laws and rules about uh, or maybe there isn't any laws and rules and and the advances of AI and military but uh, I mean these AI these machine learning inside these drones need to identify humans as they're moving and you know, all I can do is just make the correlation between modern software that we use for entertainment uh, through the recording of ourselves uh, singing and dancing and training machine learning modules to, you know, identify humans and uh, differentiate them from, you know, um, cows and and, uh, and other things. So there is a, there is a, um, a very crazy world out there uh, that, you know, I mean, I, I don't have any much preview, but I do know that there has been articles written about these types of uh, um, you know, uses in military by military forces. Who's been developing it? No, no one knows. Um, but um, I think that weapon makers are exploring all this and they need the data and the data is coming from our, our personal consumption. Um, so, you know, uh, we've worked with Waystack on uh, put embedding and machine learning on chip uh, to basically identify um, birds and send lasers uh, at them in order to, you know, scare them away from landfills. I don't see how far of a leap it is uh, for for military to basically identify human beings and, and take some uh, some very disastrous actions. So it is serious. I, I definitely, uh, um, you know, uh, think that this thing needs to be regulated. And there are some countries that are have already 
a head start in this unregulated space that could have uh, some pretty negative consequences on, uh, I guess, on humanity uh, if, 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 you know, if it's not really um, um, taken a serious look at. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing those. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting how my previous guests kind of like have taken this question. I think your answer is definitely uh, a a different uh, kind of like angle into it, which is very interesting. Uh, cool. So where can our listeners uh, follow your insights, uh, Paul? Uh, so we're Bain Public, so you can always visit our website, bainpublic.com. Uh, we offer a variety of blog posts, ebooks, and um, you know we approaches to how to be a better product manager. Let it be through AI, or let it be through all the all the other challenges we face uh, in our community, uh, digital strategies and on road mapping, and uh, and you know uh, putting uh, product manager in the fabric of your business. Uh, we also have our LinkedIn, uh, where you can um, follow our articles and basically uh, uh, be notified of you know past and present articles on the topic. We have about 60 articles published on both our website and our Medium page that we constantly repurpose through LinkedIn, as well as our newsletter. Um, and uh, and then we've recently launched a two-part series uh, called Tomorrow Products Manager Need to Create uh, the Conditions for Success with AI. It's two articles. Uh, the newsletter goes out tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, actually a, a great uh, deep dive in, uh, in the conditions that you need as a product manager to be successful in AI. So I definitely recommend going to our website, registering to a newsletter, and following our LinkedIn page. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing. I'll be... I'll be... I'll be sure to add the links in the description. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts with us on stakeholder management for AI products. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for taking the time. And to the listeners, thank you very much for listening. That's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you enjoyed it, definitely share on your social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it. Leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience. And if you have any suggestions, I'm totally open to it. You can reach out to me on social media. Uh, also, subscribe to uh, make sure you never miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Cyrus Shirazian. And until next show, stay safe and healthy.